0: So Lamentations 3 starting in verse 40 says this. It says let us examine our ways and test them and let us return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. Verse 55 says I called on your name, Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ears to my cry for relief. You came near when I called you, and you said, do not fear. Now chapter 4, verse 22 says this, that your punishments will end, daughter Zion. He will not prolong your exile, but he will punish your sins, daughter Edom, and expose your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. You know, um, when I say the word revival, what comes to mind? What do you think about when you think about the word Revival. Uh, depending on your church experiences, maybe you have a particular lens through which you understand the concept of revival. Uh, now, there's been a lot that's been said about revival. There's been a lot that's been written about it. But I want to draw out one particular statement made by um, the well-known uh, theologian J.I. Packer. He said this about revival. He said that revival is the visitation of God which brings to life Christians— who have been sleepy and restores a deep sense of God's near presence and holiness thus springs a vivid sense of sin and a profound exercise of hearts in repentance praise and love with an evangelical or I'm sorry ev- evangelistic outflow that revival is a restoration of a deep sense of God's presence and holiness that comes from a profound exercise of repentance and praise and love, all of which becomes evangelistic, essentially what Packer is saying. Now, of course, we've been going through the book of Lamentations, uh, and in this book, what we have tried to emphasize is that Judah has actually lost that, that they had lost, as a people, this deep sense of God's presence And holiness. And as a result, what we're going to begin to see now in the book is that it begins shifting toward presenting a hope of restoration for them. In a sense, it begins shifting toward a revival amongst God's people in Judah. However, if one is to experience this revival and to experience this renewed sense of God, there must be this realization of what keeps someone from experiencing that sense of presence. Now Spurgeon, uh, Charles Spurgeon, who was a, a, of course, a well-known preacher, he, he said it this way, that nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. That is to say that revival hinges on one's ability to rightly look at the emptiness that exists outside of God's presence and instead return back to Him. Now, up until this point, uh, what we've seen is that Judah, again, had lost this sense of presence. And God has been calling them back to Himself. And what we're going to begin to see is that when there is repentance, when there is self-examination— and prayer to God to bring renewal, that God does meet us in that place. And He opens up the floodgates of renewal through a work of His Spirit that can only be described as revival. And whatever your preconceived notions or ideas about what revival might be, I pray that God gives us, and He gives our neighbors, and He gives our loved ones, that He gives our city a revival that brings to life those who have been sleeping and restores a deep sense of His presence and His holiness to us. And for the next two weeks, this week and next week, I want to emphasize what it looks like to experience that kind of revival. Now, to quickly recap, in order to see where revival, what revival requires and what we can learn from Lamentations about revival— We need to consider where we've been up until this point. Of course, now Judah is in the midst of a lot of suffering. Their great city Jerusalem has been leveled. The great temple has been destroyed. The nation has been brought into captivity uh, through a brutal conquest. And then in the midst of this really brutal conquest, Judah has come to realize the extent to which uh, idolatry and injustice had become pervasive among them, that they had rejected their God and his lordship over them and the grace that he extended them by making them his people. And they had built up idols. They had offered those idols their lives and their affections and their hopes. And when God strips them down of all of those idols because of their wickedness, it ends up feeling a lot like judgment. And yet even in the midst of all of this, as we looked at last week, the poet is able to Though he cries out to God in suffering, he's also able to cry out to God in praise, for he is reminding himself that even in the midst of the hard season, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, that God has been faithful to his people in the past, and as a result, he will continue to be faithful to them into the future. And so you have this very counterintuitive posture of praise and pain. And then after, the poet now has this counterintuitive experience of pain and praise. He shifts gears in verse 40. And in verse 40 he says this. Let me let me read this to us again. He says, "Let us examine our ways and test them and let us return to the Lord." Now what I want to look at is what it means to examine our ways. What does it mean to test our ways? What does it mean to return to the Lord? Because this becomes the groundwork of seeing revival that brings life, that when we examine our ways, it's then that we begin to see revival happen. And so what might it look like for us to get the most out of self-examination? What kind of suffering and sorrow can be avoided if we do regular and proper self-examination? What kind of strength and character can be developed proactively in us if we were to self-examine Well, so that when suffering that we cannot control befalls us, we're able to handle it well. How can we be proactively growing a little bit every day? Let's consider that together. Let's take a look at first what self-examination is, and then I want to quickly look at how we can do that well. In order that in the end we might experience the renewal and the revival that comes as a result. So first, uh, what is self-examination? Self-examination, from a biblical perspective, does require us to look at more than just ourselves or our problems. That's not the only thing that we're talking about when we talk about self-examination. In fact, self-examination, if not rightly done, actually devolves into something that is very counterintuitive, or or counterproductive, rather. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones a well-known preacher and pastor, in his book on depression, he made a distinction between self-examination and introspection. And this is what he said about it, I think it's helpful. He said, what's the difference between examining oneself and becoming introspective? I suggest that we have crossed the line from self-examination to introspection when, in a sense, we do nothing but examine ourselves and when such self-examination becomes the main and chief end in our life. In other words, there are some of us who examine ourselves obsessively. There are some of us who are constantly critiquing ourselves, constantly looking inside, constantly discovering ways that we do not measure up or aren't good enough. But self-examination is not that. See, that is navel-gazing, which is this self-indulgent, excessive contemplation. And it's completely defeating because often what happens with those who self-indulge in this way is that in the end, you're left feeling defeated and down and discouraged as a result of this obsession. And if that is the case, then more often than not, you're not self-examining, from a biblical perspective, this is not what the poet of Lamentations is calling us to—this self-indulgence or excessive contemplation. But that's maybe one end of the spectrum. But of course, there are others of us who, for whom, none of that resonates at all, because you have no compulsion toward self-assessment or self-critique. Right? You are never obsessing about your faults or your failures. You do not, uh, when you do fail. You don't really beat yourself up about it at all. You really don't take any initiative to try to figure out why you failed. What's interesting is that lack of self-examination is not virtuous either. As those who grow uh, or who approach life in this way never end up growing and never really develop further. So, if compulsive self-examination is not helpful. And if never, self, never self-examining is not helpful, what then is the right way to approach this idea of self-examination? Well, there's probably many places that we could go for insight on how to self-examine well, but one of the best places, I think, is actually in Psalm 139. Uh, Psalm 139 is one of uh, King David's most famous psalms. Uh, And at the very end of the psalm, David makes this statement, which I think gives much clarity about what self-examination ought to look like. This is what he says in verse 23. He says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, for me, there's four things in this passage in Psalm 139 verses 23 to 24 that I want to consider with self-examination. The first one is what we discover is that David is presenting a self-examination that's happening before God, right? Look at how, look at what he says. He does not say that I will search me and consider my anxious thoughts, for I will discover if there are any offensive ways in me. That's not what he says, Instead, what he says is that he, he comes before God and says, no, I will not do that assessment. Rather, God, you do that assessment. You search me. You know my heart. You test my ways. You know my, my anxieties. That you see if there is any offensive way in me. He comes before God for the self-examination. If you remember, we've said this, that lament, for example, is not crying out to God in the darkness into the darkness, I'm sorry, that lament is not crying out into the darkness, but rather, true lament is crying out before God. And in the same way, true self-examination is not looking within for ourselves, but rather it's looking within before God, with God, by God. And if we find ourselves self-examining without explicitly stating that this examination is an examination by God in us, then we're likely going to fall into that navel-gazing, that counterproductive, obsessive introspection. So first, self-examination must happen before God. But the second thing that happens, and it's kind of implicit in in this whole posture, is that there also needs to be a submission to God in order for there to be true self-examination. And we cannot, you and I cannot be trusted to rightly see what needs to be seen inside of us. What I mean by that is... This, just as an example, this past week, I was meeting with some people, uh, and we were talking about our heart idolatries, you know, the, the various things that we allow uh, in our lives to become more important than, than God in certain seasons. Uh, and as we process those idols together, whatever those idols might be for you, maybe it's work or relationships or status or success, whatever those things might be, one of the things that we processed is that those idols are so sacred to us that we actually find ways to hide them from ourselves. In other words, if we do not have an external standard, someone else who is assessing us to whom we are willing to submit ourselves to, we will never fully unearth all that is buried inside of us that needs to be brought out. And so true self-examination requires an explicit submission to God and to his word and to his will for us. So we we come before God to be self-examined. Then as we're before God, we submit to Him. The other thing, the third thing, that I think is important for us to know about true self-examination is that self-examination also requires regular intentionality. Uh, We often do so many things and make so many decisions every day that unless we are regularly taking time to assess those decisions that we make, we quickly fall into very unhealthy patterns. Uh, it's estimated that we make about thirty-five thousand remotely conscious decisions every day. Thirty-five thousand—it's crazy. There is no way that you could possibly list for me every one of those decisions that you've made, even up until this point today, right? And of course, many of those decisions are just completely innocuous. Like they don't—they don't. They don't really amount to much. But many of them are also forming us. And so the question then becomes, how often do we stop and just consider the decisions that we are making every day? I mean, and so often, we don't do that. And as a result, we end up finding ourselves forming particular habits, certain, certain ways of thinking, because we've never stopped to actually consider what it means to make regular and intentional decisions about what is best, what God desires, how I am submitting to Him. Uh, One writer, when thinking about this whole concept of self-examination and what it ought to look like uh, as part of healthy rhythms of life, he gives us some self-examination questions uh, that help us consider whether or not they're actually part uh, of a healthy rhythm of life. Um, There were a lot of questions that he had uh, written down But there were a few that I found particularly helpful for myself, and so I wanted to uh, extend them to you. So use these questions as a way of considering whether or not I've slowed down enough to be able to consider whether or not uh, I'm actually coming before God in submission to be examined well. These are the questions that he said, or he asked. He said, one, how much time per month do I spend in self-reflection? Do I frequently make excuses for my failure to be obedient and faithful to God's commands? Am I growing in faithfulness or stagnating by being too comfortable in my spiritual life? Does my evaluation reveal that I see myself the way that Jesus sees me? Do I ever thank God that I am not as sinful as other people. The other one, interesting. How am I measuring up compared to Jesus? I mean, are those the kinds of questions that we've asked ourselves? And if we've never asked ourselves those kinds of questions, maybe we are not coming before Him in self examination nearly regularly enough with that kind of intentionality. The last thing to note about proper self examination is that proper self-examination must come before God with a posture of confession and repentance. This is the last thing that we can see here, that not only do we come before God for him to do the examination, not only do we come to him in submission to his word and to his ways, and not only do we do it regularly, but we must come with the intention that we are going to confess and then repent of what what it is that we end up discovering. This is, in my opinion, the turning point to what proper self-examination looks like. Look at what the poet says in verse 40. Again, he says, Let us examine our ways and test them. And then he says, And let us return to the Lord. And then in verse 55, he says that I called on the name of the Lord. In other words, self-examination that terminates simply on determining problems that I have, in my life is not helpful and it's not faithful. When we get to this place of regular examination, the goal ought to be turning back to God in the places of our lives where we've wandered off. Now, I mentioned King David, he was the one that wrote Psalm 139. He wrote the beautiful words, Search me, O God. But he was also the one who wrote Psalm 51. See, he wrote Psalm 51 after falling into what would be the most depraved sin that he'd ever committed. David was this man who was called a man after God's own heart. He was the one who wrote beautiful psalms, like Psalm 139. But King David was also a rapist and a murderer. Of course, if you know the story, David used his power as king to force himself on a woman named Bathsheba. And then he would have her husband murdered as a way of trying to cover up this act. I mean, this was a man, David, who, like us, likely made 35,000 decisions every single day. But at some point, he stopped self-examination. And as a result, he fell into some serious wickedness. And then after all of that, after falling into this wickedness, after his sin had become made known you write Psalm 51. And this psalm is a psalm of confession and repentance. It shows us what that ought to look like. Let me read for you just a few verses from Psalm 51. Verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then he goes on to say this in verse 10. He says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I mean, what is that? That is self-examination. That is acknowledging the brokenness and the sin that is within him. That is him coming before God for that examination. That is him submitting himself to God's standard and turning to God in the place where he had wandered off. That's what true self-examination ought to look like. But here's one final element. That I see in David's prayer. One final piece that I see in the, the passage in Lamentations is that consider what David says in this psalm. He says, he says to God, God, wash me, create in me a clean heart, Re, uh, renew a steadfast spirit within me, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I find that very interesting. The way that David phrases all of these things, in all of those statements, wash me, create me a clean heart, renew me, it is God who is the main actor in that cleansing and that renewal. God is the one who does this work that is needed in him to change him. And also look at our the final point uh, of our passage in Lamentations 4, where it says, your punishment will end, daughter Zion. This is God speaking to or the poet speaking to uh, Judah, your punishment will end, O daughter Zion. He will not prolong your exile. I find something beautiful there that for Judah, those who were alienated from God because of turning from him were not going to be alienated and in exile forever because God desired to bring them back to himself. God desired to bring David back to himself. God desires to bring you and me back to himself when we wander off. And this is why, my friends, I started today by noting self-examination is crucial for revival. Revival is people realizing their need for God's washing and cleaning and renewal and their need to be brought back to himself, all of which ultimately does not happen by our own initiative or in our own work but rather as an act of God's grace toward us which means that we ultimately need very quickly three things that he has provided to us and i want us to walk away today with these three things in mind knowing that it's here where revival begins to be uh, revival begins first We need a standard, we need a savior, and we need a sanctifier. Let me explain to you quickly what I mean by those. First, that we need a standard that when we realize our need for revival, we also realize that we need a standard. We need someone who exemplifies what true love and true goodness and true compassion and hope and joy look like. We need someone to whom we can look and say, yes, I want to be whole and complete like that. And of course, the only person that embodies that fully is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ is that perfect standard to whom we must compare ourselves, for there is no one else who is sinless. But not only do we need a standard, because if we only had a standard in Jesus, that would be crushing, because we could never actually be fully and completely like him, which is why we also need a Savior When we examine ourselves and we see our inadequacies and our failures, we realize that we need someone who can also come and crush the head of the brokenness and the sin that's within us. We need a savior who reigns victorious over everything that causes us to wander from our Creator. But not only do we need a standard to whom we can look, not only do we need a savior who rescues us, but we also need sanctifier, one who is constantly working in us, that helps us become the people who reflect that salvation that's been given to us. I mean, sanctification is one of those super churchy words, uh, but bottom line, at its core, what it is, is it's God's Spirit in us, making us more free from sin and more like Christ. And sanctification, in this sense, is a work that is happening constantly. And as we trust in Jesus, the work of his Spirit is in us. This is what Romans 8 is speaking about when it speaks of how we ought to be conformed to the image of Christ. Trusting that the Spirit of God is working in us. And so do you see that all of this is a work of God's grace toward you? And as we rightly come before him in self-examination... And in the beauty of all of this, this self-examination before God, under his authority, in a posture of confession and repentance, and as we trust in the work of Christ and the ongoing work of the Spirit, this is something that can be happening in us every single day. And it's this that needs to be happening if we want to see revival taking place, revival that starts in us, as we more and more come alive to the knowledge and the beauty and the glory of God in Jesus. And then also us being able to pray that those around us, our friends, our families, our coworkers, our neighbors, also experience that same kind of life-giving revival that comes as a result of that self-examination, as a result of trusting in the work of Jesus. I pray that that be the case for all of us and that God would give us the honor of being able to see it happen in the lives of those that are around us. Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, we thank you that you are a God who loves us, um, and you meet us where we are, uh, but that out of your love, you also seek to make us new and whole and renew us completely and fully, and that you have done all that is necessary in order for that to take place. That you have presented to us a standard in Jesus, the one to whom we can look and model our lives after. But not only have you given us a standard, you've also given us a savior. You've given us the one who has defeated sin and death for us, for that is never something that we could do on our own, and we could never fully and completely live up to him. And so he comes and he rescues us. But you've also given us sanctifier, one who is constantly working in us, making us more and more free from our sin and more and more like Christ. And I pray that we would come to you trusting that you desire to do that work, that we would truly come uh, in self-examination in a way that honors you, that does not obsess over us, but rather obsesses over your goodness and beauty and grace toward us. And may this be beginning stages of a revival that takes place in us, in our families, in our city, in our nation, in our world. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.